0: Coming near the end of our um, series on Philippians, and we're coming near the, you know, the the, the letter and it's kind of wrapping up here, and and just to kind of review a little bit, you know, we've been talking about you know the key to abiding joy, and actually in in the next couple sections, Paul's going to really be very specific and unpack that for us. But along the way, he's given us other pieces of it, you know, and the you know the first idea was that there's joy in the gospel. There's joy in the gospel. And you remember with Paul it wasn't just in the gospel being proclaimed. That brought him joy. It brought him joy that while he's under house arrest there's people out there for good and bad reasons proclaiming the gospel and it brings him joy. But it was also because of the gospel experienced. It wasn't just that Paul had all the right ideas and he could tell you the gospel he could present it to you and and all it's that he had experienced the gospel and he was continuing to experience the gospel and he knew its value he knew its value not just to himself you you know one of the things we have to not do to Paul is make Paul like us because we tend to think of our Christianity in terms of what it does for us and don't get me wrong Paul knows the you know the Gospel has changed him. It's done something for him. But he's also understanding what the gospel will do for the world. What the gospel is doing in in his brothers and sisters in the churches that he's planted in, specifically here in Philippi. He understands the value, the treasure of the gospel, and the effect that it's having and that it will continue to have long after he's gone. And that brings him joy. He also talked about how joy comes from from thinking of others, serving one another, investing in one another. And we've talked about this before. The more you invest in others, the more you, maybe you don't bring them to Christ, maybe you do. Maybe you just share along the way. Maybe you're there as they're going through a hard time. Maybe you're their mentor, their discipler. But the more you, you do that, the more you have joy when when they grow, when, when they have their victories, you have incredible joy just seeing what God does in their lives. And there's joy in, in, in service, joy in, in seeing what God does in others and, and then being allowed to do things for others. Paul finds great joy and as we've talked about the last couple weeks, Paul's joy c- came from valuing what God values. As long as you value the things of this world, you can never really have joy. Because the things of this world are temporal. The things of this world might give you happiness, but the happiness, is, it's going to come and go. And the things of this world, for the most part, you know, they can make you happy, but, but eventually you become bored with them because there's not enough depth to them. And then you need more and more and more and more. And so we value what God values. We value what Paul says, he values knowing Christ. And remember, he calls it the surpassing Worth of knowing Christ and knowing Christ as we talked about was not just knowledge but he gets back to this idea that he knew Christ but he also he also was experiencing Christ in his life. He knew that he was not that same old angry, bitter, rebellious young man that he had been when he was a Pharisee. Something had changed. And that something was because of what Jesus Christ had done in his life and he knew it was better and he knew it wasn't just better for him he knew that if everyone could be like what Christ was making him to be everything would be better and it gives him it gave him joy it gave him joy because he no longer had to like trust in the in the things that the world says, the world standards, the, you know, what the world says is goodness and greatness. He no longer had to trust in that. He found joy in the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and that that is indeed in- eternal. And we also found that he found joy in pressing on. That's what we talked about last week. We talked about last week, you know, I used a lot of analogies from running and um you know, um, I invited people to come run with us. And, and we actually had a taker, Brian, down here. He, he, he came out and and when he started telling us uh, his running recent running history, Eric and I were like, okay, he might make it down to the corner of, you know, Kilauea and 21st. But yeah, dude ran almost six miles with us, you know, and we were pretty impressed. But there's this thing about pressing on, that there's that you find joy in pressing on because, one, you know that in pressing on, you are becoming more like Christ. You know in pressing on that in becoming more like Christ, you're going to be better able to represent Him in this world, and you're going to be better able to serve people and to meet other needs. Oh, you can meet needs in your own power. Sure you can. But the more you become like Christ, the more you become like Christ, the better you can do it, the better you can you can represent the kingdom, advance the kingdom. And so you find joy. You know, if if I go out and if I you know if if I went out and you know went running like I do, and then and then you know, we started reading studies about how running gives you. Um, you know, cancer, and how running, you know, makes your lungs get smaller and smaller and smaller, and then, you know, it it makes your, you know, it makes you get all these infections and all these other things. And then I kept doing it. That would be kind of dumb. Or if they said, running has no effect. If if somebody could find the thing that most Americans are looking for, which is how to get in shape without leaving your chair, you know if if someone said sitting in your chair has exactly the same health effects as going out and running you know it would be harder to press on but for me i've decided that the health benefits and all of that of running are worth it so i'll go out and run even when it's hard and i find joy in it because i know that i'm i'm helping myself in that sense but there's a pressing on there's a joy because you're pressing on towards the upward call of Jesus Christ. And so he's given us so many different ways of, of helping us understand how we can have joy. And maybe none of those ways sound really good to you. Well, let me ask you this question. Is your life full of joy? And is do you, are you really happy being a, you know, Bitter old man or bitter young man or, you know, old or young woman? Do you like being so pessimistic and negative and, and, and everything is just, you know, down, and it pushes you down and you're, you're t- constantly full of anxiety? Do you like that? Because if you do, then the gospel's not for you. If you want hope, if you want joy, if you want peace... That's what the gospel offers us. Well, today we're going to we're going to look at this passage in chapter four, where it talks about, you know, Paul talks about you know living right, living right in this world. And the the you know I wanted to talk about this book, you know, I've, I've in, you know, obviously the Bible is the most influential book in my life. But one of the other influential books was this book called um, Entertaining or Amusing Ourselves to Death. Amusing Ourselves to Death. And I, I first found this book back in the 80s or early 90s. And and it's by this guy named Neil Postman, not a Christian. Um, I think this book is still very like relevant for today. In fact, a lot of what he says, it's kind of eerie that he predicts what's going to happen, you know, 20, 30 years later. But his premise is that, is that, you know, we've left the industrial age, the post-industrial age, you know, if we were to look and define, um, you know, who we are as, and he's talking primarily about American culture. And he says we've moved into this age of entertainment. We've moved into this this worldview, this belief that the the highest thing that we can do is to entertain ourselves. And so why do we work? We work so we can have money so that we can entertain ourselves. You know, I, I told you about, you know, one of my relatives who told me, you know, when he was like in his, you know, late 60s, early 70s, and he had retired, he said, you know, this made all those 40 years of work worth it. Like he had been living his whole life. I don't know if he really, I don't, you know, didn't see him as, not, as being miserable all the time, but he was living his life. And But he, what he was telling me is, all these other 40 years, you know, I, I suffered so that I could entertain myself for the last 20, 30 years of my life. It's, it's gotten into our into an education, it's in preaching, it's in worship services. We often will ask our kids after Sunday school, you go to, you know, service, you have Sunday school or any kind of children's program, what do we usually ask them? Did you like it? Why don't we ask them, what did you learn today? What, what What the Bible say today? what the teacher tell you about you know, about what it means to be a Christian. No, we say, Do you like it? Parents choose churches based on whether their kids like the children's ministry or their teenagers like the youth. And we've kind of given into this, this age of entertainment, amusing ourselves to death. And meantime, really, the really important things of life just kind of get pushed on the side you know we it's you know we would rather just spend all of our time and and by the way everybody's got their thing and it's kind of generationally like me i'm kind of i i call it god's grace um that i was born right up, you know and grew up right about the time before video games came out like when i was uh in high school the the coolest video game was Space Invaders. You guys remember that game? You know, just bloop, 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 and you just sh- shot these little things on your screen. And I remember by the time I started working with youth, and I was in the 90s, and it was great. It was, again, God's grace. I, I you know, we had a lock-in, and so we were, it's all night, and so we had video games set up, so there was time when they had free time to play video games. And the video game that I remember playing was, was NFL Madden. And I'd never played it before. And this other guy who obviously played it way too much was, was there. And I, and I realized, like, for me to get good at this game, I'm going to have to invest way too much of my life. Just way too much. And it was, it was a great moment for me because it, video games hadn't taken a hold of me but for some of you who are older, you have no like for you, like you can't fathom people, grown-ups now. I'm not talking about teenagers and college students. I'm talking about, you know, 30 and 40 and 50-year-olds who will just play video games until three in the morning. They'll play for twelve hours straight. When Cheryl started teaching at Kalani, they they said, you know, she was taking classes on on you know, how long can you engage teenagers on like Zoom and i think it's 6 minutes right 6 minutes every 7 minutes you have to stop and do something else and these are the same teenagers that can play video games for 12 hours straight but for Zoom 7 minutes it's entertaining and we all have other things you, you might think like oh you know my, that that's so you know these young people or whatever and and then you know my time it might have been television or you know it might be you know um, movies or sports or whatever else but understand there's a lot of other things too that we do just to entertain ourselves that we think that that's the whole purpose of everything else and so today there's more options than ever and we live in this, in this world where there's too much competition. There's too much competition for our attention and our limited time. And one of the things about being older is, is you, you realize time that you've, that you've kind of wasted. When you're younger you think like, you know, I'll learn to play the piano. You know, not today, but maybe I'll start next month or next year. Or, you know, I'll learn another language or I'll learn to do some, you know, different sport or something. And then when you get older, like like me, you look back and you, th- you think like, why did I never get around to that? If over the past 25 or 30 years I had invested just 15 minutes a day in that, I would I would know how to do it. I would be pretty good at it. But there's so many things that, that compete for our time. One of the good things about having kids was I realized like I needed to be a better manager of my time. I still remember being in seminary and I'm like 33 years old. I've got two kids. Eventually we're going to have the third one. I'm working a couple jobs, and I'm going to school full-time. And I used, to, I used to think back to when I was about 24, 25, and I was working at the University of Hawaii, and I was single was before, you know, Sean and I got married, didn't have kids, working one job, helping out at the church, but that was about it. That was my whole life. And I remember, as part of being at the University of Hawaii, I could have worked on a master's for free. And you know what I said? I don't have any time. I'm too busy. And so I wish when I was 33 that they actually had time machines because all I would have used the time machine for is to go back and find the 24-year-old version of myself and just slap him silly. Because here I am, a full-time student working on a master's, married with kids, and I still found time to do it. Why did I think I was so busy when I was younger? Because I was you know, filling my day with things that didn't really matter. And we do that. And so here's Paul. He's coming to the end of this letter. And remember, he's just written about, in chapter 3, about humility, servanthood, pressing on, and all of that. And then he comes to this verse 2. And he talks about something that seems kind of out of place at first. He says, I entreat Uodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. At first, this seems kind of out of place. It seems out of place for a couple of different reasons. First of all, he's naming names. I mean, how would you like your little spat with someone else in the church to be recorded in the Bible and for like the next 2,000 years, everybody hear that you had this little spat in the church? Well, I'm pretty sure I, don't want to, I wouldn't want to be remembered for that. But hey, Uodia and Syntyche, you can tell... Um, People don't think too much of these because... You, anybody know any kids named Syntyche? Syntyche, anybody? Syntyche Juniors? No? Um, so it seems out of place. It's very personal. It's very specific. But it's really not out of place. If you remember, go all the way back to chapter 2. You remember back in chapter 2, he was talking about how the unity of, of the Philippian church, how their unity... Brought him joy. That's what Paul was saying. And see, we we don't give, we don't give enough value to unity in the church, and we don't really even kind of understand what it is. We think unity is nobody's fighting. We think unity is there's general agreement. And it's really not the case. Unity talks about healthy, growing relationships that we are constantly growing closer and closer to one another. It talks about this word that, you know, we don't necessarily like to use too much. Um, we don't, we, you know, some guys, we don't even like to use it in context of our marriage, but it's the word intimacy. Because we have mistaken what we do as church, which is usually you know, keep most people at a safe distance, close enough that I know them, but not too close that I really know them. We've mistaken that as healthy church. When what Paul is talking about, when he talks about koinonia fellowship, he's talking about an intimacy that's much more than that. And you might go, well, he couldn't possibly be talking about that for the whole church. He must have been just saying, as long as you have one or two relationships like that. No, it's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the whole church. I used to, um, when I taught at seminary, you know, one of the points we'd make, especially when we're going through the New Testament, is, you know, when is a church too big? It's really not a number. A church is too big when you can no longer have like a close, intimate, united relationship with the rest of the people in the church. It could be too big when you have 12. It can be, it can be, it can be close and intimate when you have a 1,000. But the whole thing is that we don't even have that discussion anymore. We, we don't even think about that. That's just on the side. The pandemic's kind of proved it. The pandemic has proved, at least in America, that the American church has, for the most part, no real inclination towards intimacy in the church. Because we can just pivot right to online and not miss a beat. We can isolate in our homes and not miss anything. I was looking over the survey that we sent out, and unfortunately, we made some mistakes in the survey, so we couldn't really give you guys the results. Um, but I remember that the overwhelming majority of you, which was encouraging to me, believed that in-person worship services is essential to your faith. I like that. And it's saying something about that you physically gathering together meant something. But we kind of lost it. And so what I'm going to tell you, you know, I sometimes I like use this phrase, and I don't mean to put down anybody, but I call it big boy Christianity or big girl Christianity. This isn't simply the self-help Christianity that we sometimes get. And when we think about big boy, big girl Christianity, one of the things we want to know is how do we know we're growing in our faith? Well, it has to do with this word, reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation Is essential to the unity of the church. So much so that Paul, in what could be his final words to this church, he could be dead, you know, before this letter reaches um, the church at Philippi. So much so that he feels the need to address it. It's this ministry of reconciliation. Understand, when we look at this text, Uodia and Sintiche, they are good Christians. They're co-laboring. But something happened. Something happened. It, we don't get any details about what the dispute is. It could have been, you know, Uodia came in and sat in Sintake's pew, and then Syntyche was really upset. Probably not, because they didn't really have pews back then. You know, maybe, uh, you know, Syntyche wore the same dress as Uodia. He's like, you're just copying me. No, it's probably a little more serious than that. We don't know. We don't have anything. But we do hear that they're good Christians. And I think that's, in a way, 2,000 years later, gives me some relief. You see, it's not just bad Christians. It's not just weak Christians. It's not just backslidden Christians who disagree. We all can disagree. Good, healthy, serving Christians can disagree with one another. We can hurt each other's feelings. We can misunderstand one another. And it's okay. It's okay if reconciliation is something that you hold as as a very high, high priority. It's okay. The problem is sometimes in our churches we're okay with disagreements and disputes but we don't really hold in high regard reconciliation. Sometimes we have our rationale we think like well it's no big thing. It's no big thing but you keep thinking about it or you keep talking about it. If it's no big thing then if it really doesn't affect you then it shouldn't even be in your mind anymore. And just because something seems small doesn't mean that, that it can't become bigger. In, in Texas, you know, I think I told you guys before, in Texas, when you had phone books, there was a section in the yellow pages called foundation repair. And when you first move there, you don't understand why. But then when you live there, and especially if you buy a house, you realize foundations, you know, the soil there is a certain type of soil, the weather is a certain type of weather, that the foundations crack. And if your foundation cracks, you know, you're talking sometimes thirty, forty, $50,000 repair. So you're constantly like looking at the smallest crack. You start seeing just a little bit of separation and you're immediately concerned because you know by ignoring it, it can become a bigger thing. But sometimes that's what we say. It's, it's not a big thing. It's all right. I'm over it. Well, that's a failure to understand what reconciliation is. You see, reconciliation is not simply making sure everything's smoothed out. When we actually reconcile, we don't just make it right, we don't just make it make there to be peace. When we truly reconcile, we make the relationship better. It's kind of like if you, you know, like if you work out, like, um, you know, I like to lift weights and things like that. So anytime you're lifting weights, like what happens is, is you have these what are called micro tears in your muscles. And it's important because, you know, the, the micro tears, what happens is as your body repairs itself, it repairs itself stronger. And so if we, if we have these, these disagreements, even if they're small, even if they're small, as we reconcile, if we're truly reconciling, it makes the relationship stronger. You see, a lot of people don't see reconciliation that way. They see reconciliation as, you know, reconciliation is, you offended me, I want you to acknowledge it and ask for forgiveness. That's reconciliation. That's not reconciliation. That's like payback, revenge, or something. You know, that that might appease you. It might deal with the problem, but it's not real reconciliation. It's only reconciliation, again, when the relationship is better, when it's stronger. When people give me advice and ask, come to me, and ask for advice, and I don't know why I knew this, but even, you know, in, I remember in high school giving somebody very similar advice, and it was, it was like, oh, should I, should I tell this person? Should I tell them that, I said, you should tell them, but you have to realize, if you tell them, you're raising the level of your relationship with them, because right now your relationship is kind of like, you know, you're, you're kind of cordial, you're kind of, you're sort of friends but in wanting to really reconcile with this person for what they did you are going to be getting closer to this person do you want that because if you don't want it why are you doing it and so reconciliation is 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 so essential to us because There's just that whole practical, pragmatic thing. It makes us better. It makes us stronger. But as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, reconciliation is really at the heart of the gospel. That God, through Christ, reconciled us to Him. When we reconcile with each other, we're we're demonstrating that overarching spirit of, of the reconciliation of God through Jesus Christ. It becomes part of our witness. It doesn't just make us stronger. It does make us stronger, but it's part of our witness. And that's why if, if I were to think about what are the marks of spiritual maturity, what are the, how do I know I'm growing in my faith? How do I know I'm becoming more like Christ? I will tell you this. How important is reconciliation to you? Whether you're the person who offended, or the other person offended, or you just disagree, or you just misunderstood, you just you know, crossed ways, how important is it to you? How is it important it is for you to repair the relationship and make it better? To me, there's a direct correlation to how we see reconciliation and our spiritual maturity you know i I remember being in Texas and and I was helping this young pastor and and he had a propensity for making some mistakes that sometimes it was his fault sometimes he was just misunderstood but he would you know, he would offend people in the church and they would often tell me rather than tell him and so I would either call him on the phone, or I talk to him and say, hey, did you know how this was received? And there's, I'll tell you, this guy, every single time I told him that, every single time, within a couple hours, or maybe the next day, he would call me up, and he would say, hey, I went over to see so-and-so, and I i and I, I apologized, And I asked him, how can I make it right? And you know, there were times like because especially early on, it would almost be like monthly. There were times I thought, like, when I tell him this time, it's like he's gonna go down for the count and he's not getting up. He's gonna give up. But he kept going. And I respected that so much about him. I could I could work with him. I could I could see him being, you know, being a pastor because he understood that importance of reconciliation. He could have walked away. He could have said, ah, that's so petty. Why are they acting that way? And sometimes I would agree with him. But he understood the importance of reconciliation. And even though he had only been a Christian for a few years, I gave him great credit for his maturity. There were times when, you know, if, when I, I know when I was his age, I would not have done what he did. Not for all those people. But he did it consistently. Reconciliation. How important is it to you? Do you really understand how much was done so that you could be reconciled to God? Do you understand the price? Do you understand how much God has done to allow you to have a right relationship with Him? The more we understand that, the more we see it It's our ministry. It's who we are. It's part of our identity. It's part of what it means to have... His Spirit. Well, in verse 4 on down, Paul gives like a series of like commands, instructions. And he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So he's telling us here, like, the peace of God helps keep our focus on Christ. But that's how he ends. At the beginning, he's telling us to do these things. He's saying, rejoice. Remember, joy is a big theme of this letter. He's talking about being reasonable. He's talking about you know, praying without like anxiety. And the reason he's able to say pray without anxiety is he's saying if you are like mature in your faith, then you're going to trust God. You're going to believe that God will provide. And your anxiety comes from either one, you don't trust God, Or two, you know he'll provide, but you don't like the way he's going to do it. So you have anxiety. He says, don't be anxious about anything. Pray. Be grateful. Christianity is supposed to be joyous. It's not supposed to be stupid happy. Okay? It's not supposed to be like, you know, the sunshine company that we just pretend like, oh, there's, you know, there's no problems in the world. Everything's great. Everybody loves me. I love everybody. Uh, that's, that's not Christianity. Christ- Christians should actually have a more accurate, more precise, deeper view of the world and its problems. They should have one that's more than anyone else, They should be able to to take in the tragedies and the sufferings in the world and to see it. But the only reason they can do it and still have joy is because they they are grounded. They are grounded in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. They are indwelt by His Spirit. They truly believe that, that God's purposes for this world are worth everything that we have to go through. They've experienced the gospel in their lives. They know it. If that's the case, you can always be joyous, no matter how dark the night. And again, it doesn't mean that sometimes your joy is not going to be mixed with some fear, uncertainty, even doubt. But there's joy. Paul has joy because he knows the truth, but he doesn't just know the truth where he can pass a test. He knows the truth because he lives the truth. Jesus Christ did in his life exactly what He said He would do. He transformed him. I think if we get to the heart of things, one of the reasons we struggle with joy It's because we're not necessarily living the truth. We haven't necessarily experienced what the gospel can do in our lives. I don't know why. I I think it's different for different people. I think some people just don't understand. They've been sold a cheap, thin gospel. They've been sold a gospel that, you know, um, know, as, as Phil talked about, You know, it's the therapeutic, moralistic God that pretty much exists to make sure you have a happy and blessed life and then, hey, you get to go to heaven. Oh, by the way, help help a few people along the way. And so that's all they know. And so, you know, that kind of thin God, as long as things are going reasonably well, I guess you can have something like joy. I don't know why. I think sometimes it's we have never really given our lives to Christ. Oh, we've prayed the prayer. We've, you know, we've done the basics. But you know, the idea of surrendering my life to Christ, laying everything down. No, not really. But here's Paul. Paul, who says, I count everything as rubbish and actually worse than rubbish, as useless that I was before, and I just press on. There's joy. Paul ends this section. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So here he almost says the reverse of what he just said it was the peace of God keeps our focus on Christ. He then says the peace of God comes when we set our minds on what is good and live accordingly. Like, which is it, Paul? You know, Is this like the chicken and the egg argument? Eh, maybe. But Paul's doing something that Paul often does. He's, he's talking about things that sometimes are unsatisfying to us, but it's the sense of, of, of this already not yet kind of understanding it's this it's this sense of um yeah you need to make effort but god is working through you and so here he's saying what are you setting your minds on if we're living in the age of entertainment, if we're living in the age of amusing ourselves to death, if we spend 10 to 12 hours a day, you know, killing zombies or whatever else on, you know, video or watching, you know, TV shows or, or reading books all the time, if that's what we're doing, how much are we setting our minds on the things of God? How much are we setting our minds on what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. How much are we? You know, again, I don't think the Bible in any way says that we all should retreat to a monastery and just focus on God's Word all day. I don't think that's true at all. But, you know, some people then use that as justification which I'm okay. Well, let me ask you the question. How much time do you spend focusing on those things. Let's just say, okay, so he's not saying 24-7. What is he saying? Most people, at best, it's like not 24-7, it's one-one, you know, one hour, one day. Other people, it might be 30 minutes, seven days. Other people, it's not even that. Okay, so we're not supposed to go to a monastery. All right, so how much time do you spend, you know, studying the Bible? Let me tell you, during this pandemic, there is no excuse for not studying the Bible. And I'll tell you, at this church, when we're not that big, but there's no excuse. We have Bible studies nearly every day, and they're recorded. Plus, if you want to study more, come talk to me. I'd gladly just meet with you directly there's no excuse. Other churches are doing things. Other Bible studies don't have to just be ours. There's no excuse. You can get together with other people. If anything this pandemic has done, it's shown us what happens when we take away a lot of the busyness of life and we have time. What are we doing with that time? Keep our minds focused on what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely instead of spending all the time polluting our minds with everything else. And by the way, I'm not a, again, I'm not a person who says, oh, you, everybody, you know, right now, unless you're watching this worship service, go find all your TVs and throw them out into the streets and, you know, get all your music and destroy it. I'm not telling you that at all. You know, take a hammer to your phone. No, I'm not saying that at all. But I am asking you if this is what Paul is saying, if this is where we not just find maturity and we find joy and we can we can have peace and we can we can do what God has called us to do in this world, if he's saying this, then how much time are you giving to it? So if you're ever going to say, you know, Christianity is, you know, it's it's good, it's okay, And you know, the way you're talking about it seems a bit excessive. Seems a bit much. Have you ever done this? Has there ever been a time in your life where you have let your focus on what is godly be like the dominant thing in your life? I don't know. I know some of you have. I know some of you, uh, um, you know, know, you're using this time and that's great. Some of you were already this way before this ever started and that's great. And by the way, this isn't just talking about Bible study. It's talking about conversations we have. It talks about how we spend our time. It talks about why we do the things that we do. But we need to Ask ourselves, why not? You know, why not? And so Paul is making this, this as a as a positive counter to what he had just said about the false teachers. The false teachers live according to this world. That was their problem. They live according to how the world views them, how they view the world, the standards of the world. That was their problem. And Paul is, is, is now, instead of talking about the false teachers anymore, now he's saying, hey, hey, guys. Hey, guys. You, I'm going to tell you, you want what I have. You want to know how I can have joy when I'm under house arrest and I'm about to go see a crazy emperor who might kill me. You want to know? Well focus I focus on what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely commendable things that are praiseworthy and excellent and I don't let the world define that for me I let God's word define it for me and remember Paul summarized this in the previous chapter with just the value of knowing Christ. I think if we really understood the value of knowing Christ, that, that we would have the opposite problem. People would have to like, tell us, you're thinking too much about Jesus. You're forgetting all these other things that you also need to do. When I coach running, like, uh, most of my runners, I have to convince them to run more because they're not running enough. But occasionally, I'll have the rare runner who runs too much, and in a way, I kind of like them, <laughs> but I, I, I have to, because I realize, like, I'm just trying to pull back on somebody who really wants to get better. I think it would be better if we really understood the value of knowing Christ and people had to kind of help us pull back than going in the other direction of not doing enough. What do we think of? What do we spend our time? What do we talk about? Well, I pray that you know the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ and that you understand the value isn't just for you. That it's part of God's plan. It's part of His kingdom. And He's called you to have a task, a role in that. And that's an incredible honor. Let's pray.